Hello and welcome to another edition of Wellbeing. We all know the slogan slip, slop, slap as protection for our skin against the sun's rays, but should we be doing something about protecting our eyes? I'm talking today to Narelle Hine, the Media Liaison Officer for the Optometrist Association. Narelle, thank you for being with us today and sparing us the time. Thank you for the invitation. As well as being the Liaison Officer for the Association, are you a qualified optometrist? Uh, Yes, I am. I have my own practice in the city. And how long have you been in business? Uh, I've had this practice for 11 years now after I'd finished my stint in contact lens research. How long is it since the campaign started to bring it to the public's attention that they could have damage to their eyes from the sun? This campaign has been going, to my knowledge, for about the last four years in this guise and has probably been tried to be brought to the public's attention in other ways previously because it is such an important issue. The sun has always been there for Australians. What sort of damage does it do? Well, basically you could put it into two groups. There's the premature ageing of the surface tissue of the eye. We're not talking crow's feet here. We're we're talking about the delicate eyelid skin near the eyelashes and the eye surface. And then we're talking uh, actual disease of the eye, such as pterygia, which um, fortunately not everybody gets. It's a a sun-induced growth of tissue from the white of the eye across the iris, which can mask the vision if it grows too far. We talk about cancer of the eyelids, like basal cell carcinomas. I had someone in with one of those last week. And the third category is actual sight-threatening disease, which is cataract going back to retina, retinal disease. Are any of these things repairable? Cataract surgery is the most hopeful. They're doing marvellous surgery with cataracts now. The whole process takes about half an hour and off you go home again and go back to the surgeon for a checkup again the next day. Most people are pretty delighted with the newer techniques. But when it comes to uh, pinguecula, which is those lovely yellowy, creamy lumps of tissue that we can all see over the age of 18 if we get up close to the mirror, we'll see it on the corners of our eyes on the whites. Some people, more than others, depending how sensitive their membrane is to the sun and how much they've been out in the sun since they were children, that doesn't go away. We can't do any cosmetic surgery at this stage to reduce that either. Does that actually do damage to the eye? Well, it is. It's like a callus of tissue that the conjunctiva is building up to try and protect itself from the Australian climate. Mm. For example, I will see visitors from Europe or people who've grown up in Drizzly Old Island and have it. At the moment, there seems to be a campaign to encourage mums to protect the eyes of little ones with sunglasses. Does this actually make a difference to the kids? Oh, absolutely, Iris. This is the the biggest message that I want to get out today is you have to start young with the eye protection. Uh, For people who've been exposed greatly to the sun in Australia between childhood and late teens, it doubles the chance of having a, a dense cataract compared to their European counterparts who've grown up in a different climate. And, uh, not to mention those lovely pinguecula, those little yellowy, creamy lumps that we all have on the whites of our eyes. Is it any good just going to get the glasses from the variety stores or should we be doing something a bit more sophisticated? The Australian standards help us out here. 
you should be looking for a pair of sunglasses that has the Australian standards of 1067 on it. And these are little tags that are little swing tags put on the sunnies that should tell you what category of protection you're buying. A group two, sorry, a category two and a category three would be what you'd be looking for for decent sun protection as opposed to just something cosmetic and fashion oriented. It should have, therefore, full UV protection as well. So if you're not seeing those tags, have a think about what you're buying. So bearing that in... It doesn't have to be expensive Mm. either. Bearing that in mind, if you're looking at sunglasses, and I'm still thinking about the toddlers um, who are going to you know, wear them for half an hour and throw them off and trample on them. It is the risk, but it's generally follow the leader. So if mum and dad and the older brothers and sisters are getting into their sunglasses religiously, then they'll want to be part of it too, as soon as mm. they get old enough to realise that's what they, you know, to, to see what everyone else is doing. But for children, do go for a polycarbonate lens. I think that's pretty much all that's on the market for children anyway. You wouldn't want a glass lens. Mm. And something nice and lightweight so that it's not going to irritate their little noses and ears. And sure, it's very likely they're going to be lost, broken at some point and need replacement. So uh, there are lots of good outlets for children's sunnies. It's not an excuse not to get them. As part of school uniforms, they're now including headwear as part of the general uniforms for children. Um, Do you think that sunglasses should be part of that uniform too? Personally, I think it would be a great idea. I can foresee interesting developments in implementing this. For example, you have some students who might need a prescription, so they'll have to have prescription sunglasses. So trying to say they're all going to have a uniform sunglass could be kind of tough. Mm. Uh, and of course, we're also facing the, the poor old parent. You know, the kids lose their um, uniform gear quite often. Yeah. Glasses is going to be one more thing that they'll have to pay attention to. But this is the country we live in. We've got to pay attention to it. And I think a lot of parents, when they really stop to think about the issue of eye protection because you don't put your sunscreen on your eyes. It hurts mm-hmm. when it gets in there. What else are you going to do? Hats are not enough if you're around the beach and water and highly reflective surfaces. Maybe on a grass football oval, it's not so reflective. You get away with a hat. Mm-hmm. But sunglasses would be very useful. So obviously the thing is that we encourage the, the youngsters, um, not just the teenagers with um, um, a fashion no, statement, not but to really um, use them on a regular From basis. Two and three years of age, uh, mm. it's when you're taking your children down to the beach in the swimming pool, they suffer the, against the bright glare just the same as us. It's cruel mm. not to put them with some kind of protection. Plus, you are ensuring the safety of their eye surface in the future. So what about the littlies, you know, the real babies? We should concentrate on really protecting their eyes and faces from the time they're really little, I guess. Yes, and I think that message comes out quite clearly with all the the skin cancer slogans that we've heard over the years. I think most mums are very careful with that already. They're in the shade, they've got the little hats on. If they're in the prams, they put some form of gauze cloth or throw over the, the pram if the sun's at the wrong angle for the the hood of the pram to help. Most women are very aware of this now. So you really think that it's starting to get into society to to have eye protection? Oh, I wish that was true, Iris. We just had a survey conducted, 1,200 adult Australians over the country. Only 10% of Australians surveyed mentioned the problem of of eye problems with uh, UV. 
They mm. talked about skin cancer. They clearly mm. got that message. But very few Australians seem to understand that they need to protect their eyes too. My guest today is Narelle Hine, Liaison Officer for the Optometrist Association and a practising optometrist. Narelle, we've talked about protecting the children's eyes from the sun. How easy is it for parents to recognise that maybe their child has a sight defect? Well, some things are really obvious and other conditions are quite subtle where you're really going to have to be an expert to understand that there's a problem. Um, The most obvious ones for parents and teachers is to simply watch the child when they're looking at television or reading and, and writing. Just see what kind of posture the child adopts. Do they have their head habitually turned at a strange angle? Are they almost covering one eye with their hand? Because that reduces a lot of confusion for some children who have problems with coordinating their eye muscles. Are they squinting? Are they blinking a lot? Because that's a refocusing mechanism. Are they rubbing their eyes? Because often they're tired. Even the child doesn't realise that they have a problem. They're not always going to come up to you and say, hey, I can't see. Um, Sometimes it's only one eye that has a vision loss or impairment and the other may seem quite fine. So if they're wandering around answering your questions with both eyes open, you might think, oh, that's fine. But it could just be the one eye that's doing all the work. So we're recommending eye exams for all children from about the age of three every two years. And the minimum would be an eye exam around the age of two or three and then one more before they start school to see what state their vision's in before they hit the classroom. My next question was going to be, what should they parents do if they think the child has a problem? You can ask the, the teacher to watch the child at work and just see if something is happening habitually. And, of course, you get to watch them at home. You might like to listen to them read at night and watch how they, they behave with their reading and their fluency. Some Those are the more subtle things. There are expectations of how fluent a child's reading should be by a certain age, and you can compare that with other children just by asking the teacher and saying, hey, how's Johnny doing? The more easy to discover problems are often when you're just out in the car saying, oh, you know, what does that sign say over there? And they can't tell you, because if they have short-sightedness, they won't be able to see that far. So that's not the only problem, though. Some children are long-sighted or have... Uh, a degree of muscle coordination problem, which means they can see in the distance, fine, but don't ask them to sit down for more than 20 minutes or so and read a book, colour in, do anything close up. They just can't do it. So if a problem has been found with a child, either because they're short-sighted or whatever, um, what's the next step? Do the children usually end up wearing glasses? They can. In fact, I would say in majority of cases, that would be the first step to help them focus their eyes. And depending on the problem, for example, muscle coordination problems, a thorough examination can sometimes show that exercises would be very beneficial in helping the child learn to control their eye muscles. It's like physiotherapy for eyes. (laughs) And frequently, these sorts of problems run in families. So look out, mum and dad, if it's on your side of the family or you've Mm -hmm. got siblings with it, it can turn up in your children. In most cases, the vision we have, we've inherited the genes for. It's just when does the gene kick in? Is it going to be visible early in life like turned eyes uh, or some reading difficulties? Or is it going to kick in in later childhood or teens for short-sightedness? Mostly that comes on when the 
body is really going through a, a growth spurt. Because short-sightedness is caused by uh, the eye growth being unusually rapid. So someone who's short-sighted has a longer eye than someone who's not. Oh, you learn something every day, don't you? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and wearing glasses is not going to make the person's vision uh, better necessarily uh, for the future. For example, if they have a, uh, a low-powered prescription, mm. if they wear glasses, it doesn't mean that that's, they're going to have a no prescription in 10 years. It does depend on the problem. Maybe it's true, but mostly it isn't mm. because it's all genetic. Uh, wearing the glasses just gives them clear vision for the time they have them on. Okay. Um, now, occasionally, uh, I don't know what the percentages are, do you get a child who is actually long-sighted? Oh, yes, you do. In fact, it's quite normal for children in this country to be long-sighted rather than short-sighted mm. or even perfectly sighted. By the time they start school, most children I see would be a little long-sighted, and we consider that normal. It's only when they can't do all the other tests of coordinating their eyes or if they're measuring a lot of long-sightedness that we'd want to act. One of the things that's always fascinated me is how do you test a little child's eyes when they don't recognise animals or letters? Oh, there's not many of those kids anymore. Have you noticed how bright and sophisticated kids are these days? <laughs> By the time I see a, a three-year-old, some of them even know their numbers. Um, otherwise, they're very good at pointing at shapes. And we also have objective tests um, where if we can get the child to just look at a target for five seconds, mm. we might be able to um, get a good gist of what's happening inside the eye just by using physics. So we usually have a couple of tests that have to cross-check each other before we come up with a result. And then, of course, we review the, the child in a period, whether it's three months or six months later, to see how the therapy is working. Just um, while I think of it, can you tell me the difference between an optometrist and an optician and which do you go to first? Uh, okay. Well, opticians don't really exist in this country. It's a lovely old English word that came out with the, the fleet. So in England even, optometrists used to be called ophthalmic opticians, but now they're phasing that term out. It's too confusing and they're going to be called optometrists there too. So here in Australia, they're optometrists and our job is to measure vision, look for abnormalities, and if we find something that looks pathological, then we refer it on to an ophthalmologist. And an ophthalmologist is someone who deals in treatment of disease and surgery. I guess I'm showing my English background, aren't I? <laughs> <laughs> but you're not alone. I've heard the word optician used regularly around the traps, but there is no piece of paper that anybody gets that calls an optician. Okay. Well, at least we've cleared that one up anyway. There are dispensers, however, oh. and uh, some people will also refer to them just out of the old terminology as opticians. Now, dispensers do not do eye exams. Their training is to take a prescription and oversee the making of that cutting of the lens, the choice of the frame, into the finished pair of specs. Um, most people will take their child to the optometrist. We're very accessible. There's almost one of us or two of us in, in every suburb. 90% of optoms still bulk bill, mm -hmm. so it's not going to be a, a real drain on the family finances to see how your child's vision is. And we recommend a checkup for everyone, at least every two years, and in special cases, sometimes more often, depending what we want to monitor. We would think that one in four children uh, that have been tested in recent studies at primary school uh, need a little help or a lot of help. Just on that thing of, of coming in for a consultation, if you're an adult, um, you can't claim 
uh, refund from Medicare, or yeah, Medicare, unless it's two years since you had your last checkup. But if you've got to bring children back, is there a, a special dispensation for that? No, it's um, it works. It's a little complicated, but Medicare's would prefer that people found an optometrist or a practitioner, and unless they had a good reason, stick with mm. that optometrist. For example, if I saw little Johnny mm. and did a full eye exam and I wanted to see him back in six months, there are allowances within the Medicare system for that. But if in six months he took little Johnny to somebody else who had to establish their own set of readings and go through everything again before they could comment, then Medicare says, well, we're not paying you the maximum rebate for this one. You'll have to share some of the financial load yourself. Medicare sees itself as the keeper of the public purse, mm. and they're not mm. keen on... They like to justify why things are, are being charged to them. So there's a list of conditions by Medicare that would allow people to attract a full rebate mm. or a partial rebate. But almost every service that optometrists do uh, does have a, a Medicare rebate attached to it. It's just how often you use the system as a member of the public as to whether you get the maximum rebate or a partial rebate. My guest today is Narelle Hine, Liaison Officer for the Optometrist Association and Practicing Optometrist is my guest today, and we're discussing eyes and eye care. Narelle, can you explain to me what a cataract is? Yes, a cataract is something most of us in Australia are going to know about as we age, if we live to the right age. Um, we had 120,000 cataracts surgeries in Australia last year so it's pretty common mm. and it's a fairly natural progression of the aging process in a sunny country so it's the natural lens inside the eye tucked away in behind the black pupil where you can't see it is our crystalline lens and as we age or as it's uh, exposed to lots of radiation usually UV that lens will lose its transparency slowly and for most people by the time they're in their 60s to 70s, it's starting to become apparent that they're developing islands of dense crystal-like tissue within that pupil area. And that's blocking light from entering the retina. Now, what will the person see or not see? Usually, it comes on slowly, slowly, and then people suddenly realise that they're not seeing that number plate so well or the leaves on the tree so well anymore. And maybe they don't like driving at night because this little cluster of crystals that are forming slowly within the eye and spreading outwards, they almost behave like true crystals, like diamonds. They will reflect and deflect light. So having a headlight coming at you at night can be a much more disorienting experience if you're developing a cataract. Now, how far do they have to develop before a surgeon will consider removing them? Well, the rules have changed on that, you'll be happy to know, Iris. They don't make us hang around so long now before we can seek help. So our general rule is when someone feels that their cataract is getting in the way of their normal lifestyle activities, mm. it's time to refer them on to the surgeon for assessment. Uh, or, even if the person thinks it's okay, we'll make a strong suggestion if they're at the point where they wouldn't pass the driving test, that they should get off. Yeah. and get something done about it. The waiting lists can be a little long, however. Um, a lot depends on whether you want to go through the public system or see the ophthalmologist privately. Mm. Now, if they go and see the surgeon and it's all fixed up, how long does the operation actually take? Well, in the hands of an experienced surgeon with the latest equipment, uh, it takes around about 
um, 20 minutes to half an hour for for one eye and usually they will do one eye at a time and nature in her wisdom usually only affects one eye more than the other so you won't get simultaneous cataracts to the same degree of severity growing at the same time. What does he actually do as a surgeon when he's, um, when he's performing the operation? I guess it's, um, it's getting a little out of my field but I can tell you what I know about this which is it's more a microsurgery. So you're all conscious during the whole procedure because they need you with your eyes open. There's no point putting you out to it. Of course you're not feeling pain because they use eye drops, anaesthetic eye drops. And there's only the tiniest of incisions made into the white of the eye and they insert their little instruments through that and very skillfully remove the old translucent crystalline lens and put in an artificial one which they've taken great pains to calculate and measure and procure for you before the surgery. And the good news is that once all that's done, normally people haven't seen so well in years. Mm. They, they will need reading glasses, but normally their distance vision hasn't been so good for years. Once upon a time, if, if somebody had a cataract removed, they'd end up wearing glasses that look like the bottom yes. of beer bottles. Um, that's not the case anymore? No, because they put the artificial lens inside the eye to replace the spoiled one. Isn't the science wonderful? It is wonderful. <laughs> Of course, this only works if the retina is in good condition, yeah. and that's when it gets a bit sad because every decade our risk of having an uh, eye disease to the retina triples. So by the time we're in our, well, later statistics say that in Australia, by the time we're 75, 30% of us will have significant disease to the retina, which is where all the pixels are. Mm. So there are things we can do to try and avoid that, try and help nature along and uh, it's important that we do that otherwise our cataract surgery won't be the success that it could be. Now just changing the subject a bit I guess most of us know that if you have diabetes that you need to have a regular eye check. What exactly does diabetes do to the eye? Mm, well diabetes will affect your blood vessels and inside the eye, we can see it beautifully. You just look in through the pupil with all of our instruments and you can see the arteries and the veins in the body at work. Uh, someone whose blood sugars are not in good control will be showing hemorrhages of blood vessels and leakages of blood vessels and general tissue destruction, which of course in the eye means that they're losing the little nerves that help them see. Sometimes uh, the leakages and hemorrhages can be curtailed by the use of laser but that too is going to have its downside it's going to leave a scar tissue which will unfortunately see off any nerve cells that were there mm. so we all want to avoid that if possible uh, someone would need to have uncontrolled diabetes for probably two or three years before we would see the signs in the back of the eye so it's using a view of the eye to say whether you have diabetes or not isn't the most sensitive test. You should still be rocking along to see your GP every year and just getting your blood sugar test done, especially if there's a history of it in the family. Once it does show up, the optometrist will be looking for that annually. And if we do see changes to the retina, that's when we're going to be suggesting sending you on to the ophthalmologist who will then assess whether laser is appropriate or any of the other treatments are appropriate. 
When we go to see an optometrist, usually at the end of the examination, um, they check the eye with a puff of air. Is that when you check for that damage? No, that's one of the glaucoma checks, Iris. Oh, okay. So there is no one test to say you have glaucoma or don't have it, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Usually we'll use a combination of tests and just see what your results are. So when we do our various tests at the eye exam, each one is a piece of the jigsaw puzzle that contributes to the total clinical picture of your eye health at the end. So the way we look to inspect and examine for diabetic changes we would also be using those techniques while we're in there to assess the optic nerve, and that's what glaucoma affects. There's no cure, obviously, for, um, for glaucoma? None that we know, although every now and then I'll get a patient through who said, well, I was treated, and now they tell me I don't have it anymore, and I don't need the eye drops anymore. So that's pretty rare, though. It's unfortunately a disease that's not well understood, there are several kinds of glaucoma, for example. So glaucoma is really an umbrella term. But what it really means is just a loss of vitality of the nerve cells in the optic nerve which supply our vision. It's quite painless in the vast majority of cases. So the person who, ha who is getting glaucoma will be in no position to realise it. It's not going to affect the way they see the, the chart of the optometrist or for how they read their book. It usually attacks the peripheral vision first, which most of us are only vaguely aware of. So if we're looking for it, we'll be examining the optic nerve to see how the colour of the nerve and the shape of the nerve looks. And then it's important every two years, especially over the age of 40, when the incidences are creeping up with these sorts of diseases, mm. to come in again, let us take another look. And of course, the real value of these records as a living document is that you have access to the record from before. So for most people, they find an optometrist that they feel comfortable with and that's the person they return to so that it's uh, more value for their visit. You can look at the previous record and go, oh, great, no change, or, gee, this looks a little different. We should be doing more tests to understand why this is happening. Now, you're recommending or it is recommended that we go and have our eyes checked every two years. Yes. Um, that still stands, even though when we get older... Well, we may invite some of you back earlier, depending on what we find at these exams, because we, uh, we're a fairly conservative group, and I think we should be. It's other people's eyes that we're dealing with. So if we see a change but we're not certain and what it means for you, we might say, look, uh, let's see you again in three months. We'll repeat this test and see if you get the same results. Repeatability of results is one method by which we know when it's time to refer you off to see someone else. I wish we could say that by coming every two years we could protect you totally from eye disease, but we can't say that. The best we can offer is early detection uh, and then whatever treatment is available, get you off to it as fast as we can. But four things we do know so far that everyone could practice. One's a little bit hard, which is to choose your ancestors because family history and health history plays a big role. The second one is no smoking, particularly for retinal disease, to avoid that. Eye protection from the sun from an early age, because it's usually a cumulative exposure that causes problems with the retina, such as macular degeneration that is uh, more marked in communities that are exposed to the sun. And, of course, a high antioxidant diet, please. If you want to do your eyes a favour, make sure you and the whole family gets into regular servings of spinach and broccoli and dark green leafy vegetables during the week. 
all the brightly coloured veggies too. We love our carrots and squashes and corn. That's good for that little macula in the back of the eye that's so sensitive to our image. That doesn't sound very enticing as far as I'm concerned, most of it. But the spinach and the the broccoli... Do you like oysters, Iris? Oh, yes. Well, oysters are great too because, unfortunately, the Western diet is very low on zinc. And recent studies have shown that the retina, uh, especially sick retinas, seem to to repair better when in the presence of zinc. So the odd feed of oysters, that would go down really well. And if, if you really don't like this healthy eating approach... For me, I, I would think about taking a good multivitamin supplement. But if you do this, you're kind of hedging your bets. We don't know for sure that it will save you, but it's something positive you could do and it's going to help the rest of your body too. Narelle, thanks for talking to me today and uh, giving us all this good advice. Um, just on a personal thing, it's only broccoli and spinach I don't like. The rest of them I'll eat. Um, but thank you very much indeed for uh, for being with us. And uh, I do hope that um, at least some of our listeners have learnt something about protecting their eyes. Thank you very much for the chance to get our message out, Iris. And we'd urge everyone, not be a stranger, go meet your local optom, ask them any questions that they wish. Uh, if they don't know who, who's in their area, they can always phone the Optometry Association of New South Wales or on the website and ask for information. We'll be only too happy to oblige. Thank you very much. My guest today has been Narelle Hine, optometrist and liaison officer for the Optometrist Association. Next week, Graham Steele will be here with the second part of his program on mental health care. I hope you can join us. Until then, this is Iris Nichols thanking you for listening and from all the team here, we wish you well.